Hey, unfuckers. It's Max. So we have a very special drop today. You know that this is completely out of format for us, but there's, as you'll learn, a reason for it. We wanted to introduce our coffee partners from Native Coffee Traders from the Puspatuck Reservation. We didn't want to introduce it in a way that was sort of ham-handed. I, you know, we've gotten so many incredible notifications and we've gotten so much incredible feedback from unfuckers who have purchased our native roasted coffee saying, this is exceptional coffee. I didn't believe you at first. I was just trying to support the show, but now I'm tasting this coffee and oh my God, this coffee is unbelievable. So yes, it is amazing coffee. But more than that is the rationale behind why we partnered with this group in particular. You'll come to learn that it is a, uh, a longstanding friendship that started first, but it really is an appreciation for uh, the type of people that are on Puspatuck Reservation, the spirit that they bring to manufacturing this coffee, the reason they do it, the way that they do it, which I think you'll find fascinating. And I think it was, uh, I think it's just time for you to meet these incredible, incredible people that I am really fortunate to know. So without further ado, I want to introduce you all to Amy Wallace, who is the head roaster at Native Coffee Traders. She's a magical person. We're going to, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what it's like to watch Amy work. But Amy, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. And the man she calls uncle, because it's her <laughs> uncle, Harry Wallace, who is once again, the leader, the uh, elected chief of the Unkachog people on Puspatuck Reservation. Uh, he's an old friend of mine. I am terrified of him, um, <laughs> but I love him dearly as well. Harry, welcome to the show. My man, we met a long time ago, and it was during a rather uh, raucous period when um, Puspatuck was under fire from the Bloomberg administration. Mm. Now, the reason that we uh, had originally met and, uh, and, be and became friendly doesn't matter for the purposes of this show. Uh, but what I found fascinating about it was how most of the people that as I watched you work that process and battle back against the Bloomberg administration in New York City and then battle the New York State Senate and all of these committees and these hearings, what struck me at first about you was how nobody saw you coming. You're not just the elected chief on Puspatuck Reservation and, you know, a, and a passionate loyal defender of the sovereign way of life there. They're also an attorney and a pretty badass attorney at that. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your personal backstory and, and then bring them kind of through what your role is in the reservation, but what your job is uh, in your day-to-day -day job and what kind of life is like for you? We do our personal greetings there. My name is Kiwisayinini, uh, which means hunting man in my language. I'm a turtle clan. I'm an elected chief of the Uncachog Nation, and uh, I live on Puspatuck Reservation. We are old friends. We uh, met kind of in... Uh, throws of combat. As you, as you recall, Bloomberg was one of two billionaires that tried to sue the smallest Native nation on, in New York. That's right, Katsimatidis, right? Katsimatidis, the other billionaire, yeah. So we, um, I was um, fortunate to be in the position where I could defend the nation, and we needed that kind of defense to go up against these, uh, these well-financed uh, and well-heeled uh, 
uh, opponents. I went, I personally went to law school in New York and um, we practiced, I practiced law with a uh, small uh, firm. I was originally a candidate for law review, which I turned down because uh, I didn't feel that that was the, the way I was going to go. So, and I established a small law firm in New York City and gained the experience that was necessary in order to defend myself. I felt it was necessary that ultimately I would be put in a position where I would have to defend the way in which we conduct ourselves as sovereign people. And I was right. First thing we did was we established a a sovereign government, a sovereign method of doing business, and it created havoc in Long Island territories and and New York uh, under the first Cuomo administration. (laughs) And um, again, uh, it got to a point where we didn't do anything wrong, but the state of New York and the city of New York and the uh, local governments began raising taxes to such a level that we became an issue. Not of any doing of our own, but we became an issue. We had been involved in the untaxed sale of goods and services from the beginning, since the uh, contact, and yet it wasn't an issue until the disparity between what they do to their citizens and what we don't do to ours (laughs) became dramatic. And so they, one day they raised the taxes on like $6. And the next day there was a line outside our store. This is a, this is the reality. Okay. So we've been uh, in various stages of opposition. Uh, there are certain different levels of that since then. And that's when I met you. If we became good friends, because we kind of think kind of alike outside the box to say, you know, to coin an old phrase, and um, we like to defend the way we behave, you know, and protect that. This is going to be a little out of order and all over the place, but because of the uh, the personal greeting that you gave at the beginning, one of the things that I recall from that period that was extremely important to you that has taken root and really uh, continues since that time was the language. Uh, reclamation project to restore the language of uh, the original language of the Onkachog people. Can you tell uh, everybody a little bit about that process? Because losing language, uh, as we talked about in our culture cancel episode, whether it is just over time or it was a forced loss of language through the programs and and the institutions that were set up in in the United States and Canada. And by the way, this is not just a, this is an issue with First Nations uh, relationships with colonial governments around the world. We have a number of Australian listeners as well. uh, So they're very, very keen to this, this process. But forcing a culture to lose their language is one of the first ways that they try to erase a culture. And, um, you battled back against that and have had some success. Can you talk about that process? I love to talk about that. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> language is the voice of this land. It is the soul of this land, the native language of our people. So when you hear these towns like Sayaset, like Hapa, like Sitoket, like Puspatak, that's the soul of this territory. So when you reclaim what those words truly represent, it's just not colorful verbiage. It has a meaning. It has a significance. It has a purpose. When you reclaim that understanding, 
And what you are doing is protecting the land because you are reminding people why it was called that in the first place. What was important about it? Why were we there? What were we trying to save? What were we trying to do? What were we, what was our relationship to that land? So these names are relational. And when they take, tried to take the language away from us, they tried to eliminate not just the words, but the relation to it. There's a place on Long Island, and I reminded someone of this just yesterday. There's a place on Long Island called Gichi Mani Choki, which, if you understand our language, it refers to Gichi Mani too as the name of the creator, the great spirit. Aki is the name of place or location. So what does that refer to literally? It's the place where the great spirit resides. That's got to be the be Hamptons, right? Oh, no. <laughs> but the, he might have a summer place there. I'm not sure about that. But it's, uh, it's kind of a place where you can go and, you can be, and it's where you speak to spirit. But the word, translation of that in English never refers to that relationship. So when you reclaim that, you reclaim that understanding of what that territory is. But th- that, it's, it's one thing to say like, oh, we want to recover and reclaim our uh, original language. The actual process of doing that is really, really complicated. This is not an easy thing. I mean, you're talking about uh, people are so far removed from it. And, you know, it, think about American culture. We refuse to learn any other languages. You know, you know, you travel to other parts of this world and people speak seven languages. It's no big course, deal. In yeah. America, it's just not a thing that we, that we do. So reclaiming a language, that must have been a really arduous process. It's, uh, it is an arduous process because it's not just about learning words. It's about learning a way of life. So what we teach in the language is the way, the way of life. And as our, our, our grand chief, I'm a Madewan man, the grand chief tells us we don't lose language. We just disassociate ourselves from it because it is a way of life that we have to understand. I was just reading an article earlier today that there's a um, Anishinaabe man who is learning how to say the words of plants and medicines in the language because he realized that those places that have retained the original words of the land and the language of the medicines are those places that life, all life, bird life, fish life, animal life thrive. And those that lose that meaning those are, those are the places where that life is in danger. Now, that's not a coincidence. I don't believe that's a coincidence. I believe that that is a reflection of the way of life. And that's what we're trying, that's what we're doing here. So it's more than just words. And yes, it is difficult to do that. So speaking of way of life, can you give listeners a little bit of context um, about the area, the region, the coastal aspect of, um, well, I guess Puspatuck, as it's formed today, but historically, the Unkachog people lived and they fished and they were, you know, very much a, an agricultural community. They were a hunting community. This was a very, very, but the, but the water meant a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that it's Shinnecock as well, right, mm-hmm. that it, uh, is on the island, but there were a number of other tribes that were, they don't have current territories necessarily, right? But current occupation. Current yes, occupation. Right. 
but they still exist. Yes. And we have kinship relationships with all the different communities from Long Island. Long Island is one of the real special places, I believe, in the world because it has its own source of fresh and salt water. And if you are looking for, when you the saying that water is life, if you're looking for life in that, in that context, you have all freshwater beings and saltwater beings all within um, 110 you know, mile radius. And that is an incredible way in which to live. We have ocean, we have saltwater rivers and freshwater rivers and bays where all life forms have been able to thrive on that. I was talking to Amy one time a little while ago, and I said, you know, the pilgrims didn't survive by turkey. (laughs) They survived because the Uncas taught them how to catch eels. Eels was the most, uh, they they floated up the rivers because they live in both salt and fresh water. They were born in fresh salt water. And then they travel and grow in the saltwater estuaries of our, of our coast. So they, their abundance was phenomenal. Mm. And it's a very um, lost knowledge of, of how to uh, raise and grow and catch eels and survive through the winter. And um, that's how they did that, that first winter. Are you still connected to it in some way, through anything through, um, you know, when— what's taught in school, any sort of the cultural history that you help maintain as, as a leader of, of the, the nation, are there aspects that might be different to your sovereign identity as the Ankachog people than what others might associate in different parts of this country as, as reservation living or, there, or different territories? Is there an experience about being on the water, near the water, and a cultural aspect of Ankachog people that is different and you're still connected to? We're still connected to it. As a matter of fact, we're fighting the state of New York now over our right to fish. I mean, uh, it, the fight never ends. It's just it's subject matter just changes. You know, because if you create a market where you, you, you make a dollar uh, for catching a fish, okay, well, it's not so much, it's not a big deal. So we don't pay attention to you when you, when you make the dollar. But if you catch a fish and it's $1,000, well, we want to control that because $1,000 gives you independence, independence of life, independence of, of, um, of uh, thought, independence of action. So we want to control that. And New York is not about protecting the species because all they are resource managers. Because if everybody in New York got a license to fish, then there wouldn't be any fish. So they're expecting you to ignore those. So their issue is not environmental protection. Their concern is control. And as you know, we have a hard time with control. I sensed that about, about you. I don't know. It's just something I picked up on. The other thing that we have um, in relation to is wampum, which is the shellfish, which is the quahog clam. Your detritus, the things that you throw away every day, the shell, to us is a living thing part of a living thing. And we make wampum out of that, wampayu, which is the uh, shell beads that we use to make, traditionally it was used to make um, belts, used to tell a story, to record a, an agreement, to record historical, rela- historical events, also to make beautiful things, mm-hmm. beautiful jewelry, beautiful uh, items. And uh, 
we still have that connection to it. We are the largest wampum making factory in North America currently. Is that right? That's right. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. And uh, we continue to do that. Hmm. I have another relative <laughs> who is in charge of that because I'm trying to, I'm trying to move away from all this, uh, this activity. But um, my daughter, Lydia Chavez, is primarily responsible for Wampum Magic. We call it Wampum Magic, we call it. I like and it. She's, she's exciting. It's exciting a business. They, she's, she's an artist. These guys are really smart people. They're, they're taking it to the 21st century, man. And I'm, you know, I'm barely tech savvy. I'm not tech savvy. I'm just tech, <laughs> tech handicap, as we would say. <laughs> so before we get into the economics of things, I, I, I do want to talk about one relational item, and that is the idea of sovereignty. What's interesting is, is through my you know, former life in, in reporting on sovereign issues and then exploring them through the, the narrative of this show is, believe it or not, well, I know you believe it because you live it, it's still a very difficult concept for most people in the U.S. and Canada to wrap their, actually not as much Canada, because they at least have a uh, sort of a spoken element to understanding that uh, there is a nation-to-nation contractual obligation and negotiation that needs to occur before they can make any sort of decisions. And Amy and I were talking before the show about sort of the performative nature of things. I know that it doesn't necessarily resonate up there all the time through policy, and it might be a little bit performative, but at least there's some sort of um, there's some sort of stance that there's a recognition that these are independent sovereign nations. In the United States, culturally, we really don't have that type of relationship with Native peoples here. We don't really recognize the autonomy and the idea of sovereignty. And the idea of sovereignty does mean something different depending upon the territory that you're in. One of the things that I'm always careful about, and again, Amy and I were talking about it before, is to recognize that tribal nations are not a monolith. You can't just assume that if you understand how one works, that you're going to paint that that with the same brush all across the country. It's just not the way. To me, that was actually the most important thing to understand about sovereignty is once I understood that there's nothing more fucked up than tribal politics and you just cannot assume anything about it because I could not put my finger on it when I was going from nation to nation, I realized, wow, this is not a singular entity. These are, these are hundreds of uniquely identified entities that all have to have a relationship with the bigger brother, which is the United States. Can you discuss in your relationship as a citizen, as an attorney, and as the leader of your people right now, this idea of sovereignty, the importance of it, and, and what it means by definition? Okay, well, the United States may not recognize it or, or recognizes it in a limited degree, but it used to because the fundamental foundation of this government was based on a sovereign relationship with the Native people here. And the concept of represent, representational democracy was formulated through treaties and agreements with the, especially in New York. Okay, and the colonial relationship we had that carried over into the formation of the United States government recognized that we have a nation-to-nation relationship with the Native people. 
It was only when the numbers began to diminish and the numbers of, I mean, the numbers of population, either through disease or war or genocidal practices, starvation and so on, that the government representatives began to look at ultimately that this problem will go away. And, but we didn't go away. We stayed. We survived. We survived the Holocaust. And we are the survivors of that. We're still here. We're still here. The problem is, is that we were taught that our, our side of the equation never changed. So we are still those people who negotiated as equal partners, especially in New York, because there's no conquered people in New York, especially in New York. So our side of the equation says that we made an agreement with you. We kept up our bargain. You violated yours. Now, we may not have the numbers to challenge you like we were able to do so in the beginning, but we still maintain that relationship. And historically, you look at the record, which is why being a lawyer, because you go back into the historical record and you see that, yes, that's how we dealt with issues as equal partners in the beginning. And it hasn't changed. And your laws don't apply unless we accept them. And our relationship, whether it be political, whether it be economic, whether it be social, is as equals. It wasn't until 1968 that an Indian or quote-unquote Indian in New York was not considered a minority because it's not a racial, it wasn't a racial definition, it was a political definition. And in the United States Constitution and in the New York State Constitution, these political definitions were incorporated and represented through the, from colonial times. So the concept of dealing with each other as equals, first as military equals and then as polit- and political equals, and then as economic equals, is something that modern-day people, is hard, hard, hard for them to wrap their minds around. But it is how we have always grown up and we're taught. Our children are taught that you represent yourself as an equal to the state of New York and to the federal government, not as a citizen or a subservient or a, you know, or beneath or less than. I remember um, I was <laughs> reporting on Seneca and <laughs> whoever I was talking to said, well, think about it this way. Our relationship is, it's a familial relationship, but it's not a parent-child relationship. It's a fraternal relationship. We are brothers. We're natural brothers. It's just that one brother is a little bit bigger and he's an asshole. (laughs) 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 That I, and you know, but so that actually helped sort of all of these little pieces and anecdotes sort of helped me codify my understanding, you know, as, as I was reporting through it of like, well, how do we talk about these issues? Because it is such a foreign issue, such a foreign concept to most people still in these nations that there can be sovereign nations within the landmass and territory and geographic area of another nation. That doesn't really compute for a lot of people. And there aren't all that many examples of it across the world. And it is really kind of the ugly wart and stain that is a legacy of the colonial aspect of, and, and the aggressive colonial aspect of, of the conquered 
you know, people in the conquered nations. And I love that you just put that qualifier in there that there are no conquered nations in New York. I'd never really thought about it that way. And that's, that's, that's kind of a, a brilliant way to state it because I did also get the feeling as I was reporting through that the New York relationships were very different than relationships that I, that I had seen across the country. So let's, let's talk, well, actually, before we get into economic development, we start talking about this fantastic fucking coffee. <laughs> um, you know that we're also a close collaborator with a mutual friend of ours, that's John Kane and uh, his Let's Talk Native program. John has no designs, as he told me, on talking to white people. It's not his thing. He'd rather just talk to his people, and that's what it is. So while we're having this conversation, and because you and I both like to break his chops, is there anything that you publicly want to state to embarrass him or say anything terrible <laughs> about him on this, on this forum that I can cut up and send to him and say, man, the shit I heard that I got Harry to say about you? <laughs> I'm not going to get you to say anything. I'm going to give you ammunition <laughs> to, to cut up my man. Now, he's my friend. You know, I, We've been friends uh, for a long time, ever since the, uh, we organized the, the first, uh, to my mind anyway, the first Native American alliance who did fighting with the taxation issue going back to uh, um, Mario Cuomo days. And, uh, and even before then, uh, when uh, they had some uh, takeovers at Kanyange and so on. And uh, I've known those guys uh, for a long time, even as a college student, you know, going, growing up, you know, coming from New York. And so now I, I don't have anything bad to say about my man, John. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> So that is a reminder to listeners to check out Let's Talk Native with uh, John Kane because if you really want some really honest, learned discussions about Native issues in uh, North America, he really is a prince of a guy, and um, he's and and extremely extremely honest and open. The one thing that I really appreciate about the way about John's discourse is that he's really open to different concepts and different voices, and he loves to have it out so that we have a shared learning experience. Of course, if you wind him up, my man can go for hours and hours and hours. And uh, oh, is that is that a shared? Uh, is, yeah. there, is there some commonality? Does he still do NPR? He doesn't do NPR anymore, though, does he? I think he was on. Um, well, he was on. What was it? That's BAI. Yeah, that's right? his own, city. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, let's uh, so check out. Let's talk native, and let's get into uh, economic development because okay. one of the uh, as unfuckers know, one of the uh, guiding principles of this show when we started it was that we didn't want to uh, just throw, we didn't want to gate any content and we didn't want to uh, sort of haphazardly represent brands or things that we didn't necessarily uh, believe in under sponsorship. So early on, I reached out to Harry and I said, uh, you know, hey man, are you still, are you still roasting coffee out there? And uh, then I got an earful. So, Am I roasting coffee? Well, let me tell you, I'm not just roasting coffee. We're making the best fucking coffee. Yes. Uh, that you can buy. And th so I took a trip out and, um, and I met Amy. And just very, very quickly, I just wanted to sort of tell you what I walked away with and, and my impression. And then uh, I want you to talk a little bit about this product. And then we'll talk about the importance of this type of economic development. It is a small, extremely well-organized, tidy operation on Puspatuck. You are there for every batch yes. and watching you watch your beans to me was like watching a painter at work. And I was really struck by how 
This was not really a manufacturing process. This was art. This was true love. And you know, the way that you touched <laughs> the roasting machine, whatever you call that thing. <laughs> Big mama. Big mama. You <laughs> sort of had a hand on it. And, and the way that you spoke to the coffee and you're like, oh, no, she's not ready yet. And hang on. I watched this turn and this is beautiful. Oh, and I want to take this out. Mm-hmm. It was such a loving, artistic, hands-on process. I want you to, as best as you can, try to pour <laughs> that love through the microphone to tell everybody about how beautiful, really, this, this process is. Well, uh, to get to where I am now, I have to go back to when the company was started in 1994. And being a uh, 11-year-old girl watching my family, the generation above me, putting all of this together as far as what kind of being are we going to choose? What can we do to give back to the community? What's the purpose behind it all? Uh, what is it? What's our mission here? So watching that as a young girl, it was so important for them to put out a healthier, tasty product that was still coffee for the people of our nation. So like as an adult, I feel like I have to. No one asked me, say, hey, Amy, I need you to come over here and do this. Just watching the process as an adult, I said, I want to be a part of this. I need to be a part of this. I want to learn everything I can about this industry and, you know, bring it back to my family. So I started my roasting lessons with Becky. She was the um, master roaster at the time. And she told me everything she knows about the business, the love, how to care for the equipment, how to wisely choose your green beans, roasting temperatures, the work. She gave me everything she knew. And it was kind of like they just sat here. My Uncle Harry gave me everything he knew about the industry. Everyone around from that generation said, this is what I know. You take this. And it was just like, here, go. So it was a blessing for them to to trust me with this company and say, uh, it's your turn now. It's time for you to grow. So when you see me uh, roasting, you see me in my element, it comes natural for me to be like, wait, big mama's not ready. <laughs> Max, hold on. Give me a second. Like, just let me do this because it's um, it's a gift that they gave me. It's a blessing that they gave me. You know, I feel obligated to produce every batch with love because my family loved me and trust me enough to say, we want you to do this. And I love the artistry of roasting as well. And I love what I do. The smell alone that fills the room mm. during after, mm-hmm. before, because when you walk in, it smells like coffee. Every rose is just breathtaking within itself, you know. So even when I leave work and I may have to go to like the grocery store and, you know, people are like, what does that smell? What does that smell? Like, you know, I'm just like walking straight that way. Because I'm like, oh, my God, you smell like coffee. <laughs> just that comment from people, you know, it's just, you know, it, it's flattering. And then once people get the opportunity to taste what I created, it's so good, Amy. It's so good. And I'm not tooting my own horn only a little bit, but it really is good because the feedback that I get from every person who's ever tried native coffee, you know, it, I, I'm flattered. I'm blown away by it. And it makes me want to continue to produce a great quality, great tasting, organic fair trade product. I take so much pride in, in what I do. Every roast, I, I take pride. And you have incredible depth of knowledge, too, because we hit you up all the time with <laughs> um, random questions that we get from listeners or we just have ourselves. And uh, you're always prepared with like a really deep and thoughtful, sometimes surprising answer. <laughs> but speaking to that, 
the selection of the beans, there's mm-hmm. more to it. So people know to look for, oh, is this organic? Is this fair trade? Great. I mm-hmm. feel good about myself. I feel good about buying it. But you actually go a little bit deeper. There's another Absolutely. level to the selection of the beans and the territories you get them from. Can you talk about the rationale behind where you get the beans? Uh, so the first thing we um, needed to decide um, where we get our green beans from was that the quality of bean, that it was a premium bean. So we, our beans are Arabica, of course, organic. And we wanted the family um, farmers to get paid fair wages. So this is where Fair Trade Alliance come in because we wanted everyone to be paid fairly. Then we took it a step further behind the scenes where not only is our uh, green beans that we choose have all those three things I just mentioned, but we're a uh, rainforest alliance. We do not deal with farmers who destroy the land. We're bird friendly. We do not deal with farmers that will destroy the crops where there's no bird life. They're not able to thrive in these environments as well. There's something about the selection of the countries as well that I found that, that surprised me. So what we do is we only get our green beans from um, South and Central America. And one of the reasons like my in uncle's Mexico. in Mexico, and one of the reasons why my uncle, he explained, he touched on it earlier about Colombia is that we took a loss. Someone that uh, we love dearly was killed in Colombia trying to fight for uh, fair wages and to not destroy the land over harvest. And she lost a life behind that. So we make sure to um, keep these things in mind when we're selecting our green beans. You know, we want to put out a great product, but we don't want to harm the earth anymore. And we don't want to harm people anymore. And we want people to get paid fairly. And what about Brazil? Right. Well, actually, right now, the uh, crops that's growing in Brazil, yeah, there's a drought and it's making prices go up. And of the green bean, like dramatically, uh, our price went up like 30 percent because Brazil, they don't have like certain laws in place to protect the people. And it's kind of like a free for all. And although it'll cost us more to get our beans from South and Central America, we stand by what we stand by. You know, not just to put out a good product, a quality one, but our morals as well is like number one on our list. And what do you stand for? And this is what we stand for as a company. Is there anything that you do differently in the roasting process? Is there a bit of magic that you sprinkle into it? Why the fuck is this coffee so good? And I'm not even kidding because everybody that tastes this coffee is like, oh, that's what coffee is supposed to taste like. It's just different. And it's something, so I'm, I'm a, you know, there's so many people that identify as, oh, I'm a coffee snob. I'll only have Starbucks, which means that they won't have Dunkin' Donuts. And then Mm -hmm. you have, and, and I'm, I don't want to shit talk any, anybody or any company here, but then you have the native roasted coffee that you produce and you're like, what have I been drinking for 20 years? <laughs> I'm, I'm not even kidding. Uh, like, uh, it's just so you. different. Absolutely. Every batch is watched the entire process. You have to, I don't want to give up all my secrets, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, most roasters are flash roasters. So they put the uh, green beans into the uh, roaster uh, they set a timer, 20 minutes, they release it, it's done. Mm. At Native Coffee, once the green and most beans- Most of them are burned. And burned, yes. You, you can taste the after. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that aftertaste that you get from coffee, that's the burnt part. And right. they don't throw any of that away. They just <laughs> grind it all up together. <laughs> right. right? So, Absolutely. So we, we don't engage in that process. But with the burnt coffee that he's talking about, this is why people love the 
caramel and the mocha because you have to add that flavor to it because you're just drinking burnt coffee. Uh, Every roast is watched. Um, I adjust the airflow throughout the entire process, depending on how it's roasting. I adjust the flame throughout the entire process, depending on how it's roasted. I listen for certain crackles. No one roast is the same. I don't understand how you can say, oh, okay, we're roasting at 450 degrees, turn it off or release the bean. I, I don't understand that. It depends on the don't temperature. Don't defend yourself. Don't right. listen to him. You know, did he, does he ask Anthony Bourdain how to cook chicken? It's chicken by any other name. No, right? no, so don't give me know. that bullshit. Okay. You know, don't, don't let him play. I, but, you I, you know, I, take, play. I take pride in it. I don't love let it. Him. I love what I do. Don't let him bullshit I love you. what I Look, do. Okay. People, people cook the same thing a million times, a million different ways. Guess what? We do it better than most. Okay. You made okay? it simple. I'll take That's it. That's all there is to it. You know? All right. That's the secret. The secret is drink it. That's what okay? I'm talking about. I'll and that it. we're going to cut up and yeah. put at the very yeah. top of the show without a doubt. Right? <laughs> yeah. Just drink it. Just it's drink better. it. Okay. All right. So now before we go, I, I do want to talk about economic development and indigenous economic development and the importance of fostering this type of, of economy. When we did our Economics of Racism episode, we relied heavily on two main sources. One was called The Color of Law and the other was called The Color of Money. And it really walked through the history of systemic racism from an economic perspective and a subjugation perspective through the mechanisms of the country against a certain class of people. It it was a great episode. We got a ton of amazing responses from it because so much of it was just eye-opening. What what overwhelmed me in putting it together was when you go that far into a subject and you're like, does this ever fucking end? Does the harassment and the haranguing ever end? And it reminded me of what you've gone through, Harry, to build any sort of sustainable economic development because the second you find success with it. There's somebody knocking on your door with a rule change. So we were committed, obviously, to doing it this way. If we're going to build this show, we're going to build it for one reason or one reason only. It's going to be to partner with you, know, with you, create this type of economic development engine so that at a minimum, it's this is small potatoes. What we're doing is nothing. But at a minimum, it's a proof of concept to demonstrate that you have great entrepreneurship, you have great drive, great quality processes. You have all of the same type of ingenuity that it can be found off reservation, but it's this much more important that we create the type of economic independence on on native and sovereign territories to exactly be able to push back when the knocks come at the door with the rule changes. Tell me from your guiding perspective, the legacy that you are leaving in creating this type of environment for others to succeed on your territory? Well, I believe the legacy is access to capital and teaching them how to operate a business properly is one thing, but being able to access capital, Mm -hmm. that's something completely and entirely different. And it has always been denied us. We have a legacy of creating our own business, the Uncachug Nation. Back in 1676, we established our own whaling company. <laughs> and the local Suffolk County um, whalers tried to prevent us from doing that. They tried to overrun our whales, overrun our industry, destroy our shipping, destroy our boats. And we almost went to war with that. 
Now, New York State remembers there was a war at the time, 1675 in Massachusetts, where, quote unquote, uh, King Philip's son, uh, he called him King Philip's, but Massasoit's son, warred on Massachusetts because of their overing on his territory, and he virtually destroyed the entire colony of Massachusetts. And New York remembered what they called General Keefe's War in 1643, where the, the entire colony of New York was reduced to, a, to a, a place south of Wall Street, hence the name Wall Street, um, because that was the only portion of the territory that they had left in their possession after that war. So the governor of New York recognized that this could be a problem for us if they continue to interfere with our rights. That's why I said the original relationship was much more equal because the military aspect of it was still prevalent then. And so we entered into a treaty with the, with the colony of New York that they would not interfere with our whaling. So then Uncatog Nation has, and others, we have a distinct economic relationship with the state of New York and the United States where we will be, our relationship is independent from yours, okay? So the difference that they've developed over the years is that they have denied us access to capital. And by access to capital, I mean you can't borrow money from a bank, you can't finance an operation. You're on a reservation. Your land can't be taken from you. Your land can't be mortgaged. Mm-hmm. And because of all these A, B, C, D, and E reasons that are some fabricated, some legit, they um, denied us capital. So when we established the smoke shops and the gas stations and those things, and to some extent the casinos too, if you want to go there, the reason why those are important to us is because not in and of itself that it is an, an achievement. I don't think any of those things in and of themselves are something that should be you know, lauded, but they provide you with an opportunity to do the more traditional things that you should be doing. And that is what Amy is doing and what Lydia is doing, making the wampum and the coffee. And we provide them access to capital that they would not have been able to gain and so the Absolutely. concept of developing business, a legitimate business that is worthy of, um, you know, Max's show, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have the opportunity to do that. And having someone who is able to uh, take that, like she said, she grew up at, in, in that environment and take that and take it to another level. I'm excited. I, I can't believe she was paying attention. You know, I mean, it was just she's wonderful. eleven. <laughs> Watch her. Watch her closely. So my last question. Que- my last question, Harry. You are once again the elected chief of the Uncachog people. That's the statement. My question is, what the fuck's the matter with you? Do you need this like a hole in the head? Come on. Well, I have a couple of unfinished things. I have some unfinished business, and then when I, if I, if I can finish it. And I can just, well, actually, as Amy will tell you, I've kind of parceled out a lot of responsibility to different people to these things. I know that's hard for you. And um, it's hard, but it's necessary because I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I don't want to do this. I want to, I want to live in peace. I want to live with my family. I want to enjoy, you know, the portion of my life as an elder. And I want to focus on the things like language, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and teaching our kids uh, those things and teaching that and focus on those types of uh, objectives, you know. 
to the extent that we can uh, be any wind in your sail to help get that done. Unfuckers, you heard it. Let's do this. Order this coffee. Support <laughs> this nation. Support this incredible woman who's been watching this process since 11 years old <laughs> and feels and listens to the machine who literally <laughs> looks over every blend and every roast that you're going to taste. She watches over it all with this incredibly wonderful, artistic, watchful eye. Amy, thank you for uh, coming in today. Thank you for your partnership and thank you for your artistry. I appreciate you more than you know. Thank you. And uh, Harry, I'm still a little bit afraid of you, but I do love you. <laughs> I thank you so much for your partnership and for your openness and your willingness to participate in this, uh, this little project we got going on. Um, thanks for being a good friend. Yes. All right. And thank you for your partnership. Um, if I may say one more thing. Sure. It's a special little boy's birthday. He's turning eight. He's my son. His name is Chase. Happy birthday, Chase. Happy birthday, Chase. <laughs> we love that. We'll make sure we put that up top too. Uh, thank you. All right. Do you want to say uh, anything uh, fucked up in your native language <laughs> to me as you close out the show under your breath that yeah. I'll never understand? Thanks for being yeah. on. Um, for having given me the opportunity and it's always an honor yeah. to speak to people it's always an honor to express a, a, a thought or, or a point of view and uh, I respect and appreciate that that privilege so right thanks on. for that opportunity yes thank you alright on fuckers there you had it we'll talk to you soon we'll see you for the next episode which I don't know what it's going to be uh, but hopefully you enjoyed our last episode on climate change and you've got some feedback for us you know what to do now. The call to action is very simple. Order some native roasted coffee, free trade, bird friendly, fair trade, uh, organic, grown in countries that do good things for good people <laughs> and looked over by a watchful, careful, artistic eye of Amy Wallace. We'll see you next week.